Good morning. It is great to have you here at Central Church. If you haven't figured out, this is our itty-bitty sermon series. And so I, I got these chairs to make me feel ittier and bittier, I guess. And we've used itty-bitty offering plates, and you've gotten itty-bitty uh, uh, worship folders, and we had our itty-bitty worshipers uh, leading us this morning, which was, which was wonderful. And of course, we had communion, and always with communion, you have itty-bitty, itty-bitty juice and itty-bitty bread, thank you. When your sermon just disappears on your iPad, it just makes things go crazy. And so that's where I'm at. Um, so we're going to figure about that later, and you pray for me as I go winging it. Um, <laughs> this sermon series, the whole idea behind Itty Bitty is using the suffix I-T-Y and speaking of that through the life and the lens of King David. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at words like humility and purity and integrity and generosity and, and community And today's word is potentiality. When you think about your life, when you think of of who you are, what you've done up until this point, do you see yourself as, as, uh, uh, as the potential that God has placed in you and the possibilities that God has for you? Or do you look at yourself and and reflect upon all the mistakes or the problems or the troubles? How do you view yourself? How do you, you see yourself in, in light of God's activity in your life? Well, I think David is going to be able to help us with that. In a little bit, I'm going to read from 1, Samuel 6, from 1 Samuel 16. But before we get to 1 Samuel 16, we have to really understand where that is. And, and that's the, really the beginning of the story of King David is in 1 Samuel 16. But in order to get there, you've got to start a little earlier. And earlier is when it, you need to understand a little bit of your Old Testament history. Your Old Testament history is this. The people of Israel wanted a king. They begged God for a king. And, and really the reason they wanted a king was not so much uh, uh, for, I guess, uh, pure reader, reasons and motivations. They wanted a king because they wanted to be like everybody else. All the other nations had kings. They wanted a king too. Peer pressure is not just for teenagers, I guess. And God said, you know, having a king is a really bad idea. Up until this point, it wasn't a monarchy, a king leads. It wasn't a democracy, the people lead. It was a theocracy, God leads. And, and, and so, so they're calling for a king, and God says, a king is really a bad idea. Kings mean higher taxes, and kings mean armies, and kings bring with them in that day and culture harems. And kings are oppressive, and you throw in there a little bit of idolatry and bad foreign policy, and that's what you get with a king. And they said, yeah, we, were, we really want one of those. God said, that's a bad idea. Really, they were rejecting God. They weren't rejecting anything else. They were rejecting God. God had been their king. And up until this point, they had leaders, judges, and those judges were to interpret God's law and apply them to the people. Sometimes they were military type of, of people as well, but they were judges. And the last one of those judges was a guy named Samuel. And when Samuel was getting older, they thought that, that Samuel was done, and they didn't really like his sons. His sons had been particularly uh, 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 wild. And so they, they, again, rejecting God and rejecting Samuel, they said, we really want a king. God said, that's a really bad idea. And so they, they, they continued to ask and ask and ask. And finally, God gave in and relented. 
Do you know, God will let us make bad choices too. Chances are, if you make a bad choice, God is not going to send a lightning bolt and strike you dead. He'll allow you to make a poor choice, even when it goes against what he wants, even when it goes against his will or his desire for you. He'll allow you, in most cases, to do just that. And you've known people, and I have too, who have made poor choices in God because he's he's so much uh, uh, loves the idea of free will and our free choice to freely choose and serve him. He'll allow us to make terrible choices. And he'll allow us then to live with those consequences of those choices. And sometimes God will come like he did to a friend of mine. One, uh, my, my one friend who, who went off the rails and, and had all sorts of trouble. At one point, when he was finally coming to his senses, God said, well, this is what you wanted. I thought this is what you wanted. He said the only time that he really sensed God speaking to him was God pointing out that, that he was getting exactly what he wanted. And it wasn't the good thing at all. Well, God lets the people of Israel make their lousy choices and decides to have a king. And by all accounts, the king they, that God chose for them was a guy named Saul. By all accounts, Saul was a, was a good choice. The Bible says in chapter 9, 1 Samuel 9, his son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel. Before that, in verse 1, if I would have had the notes, it would have told you that his dad was a guy by the name of Kish and he was from a very wealthy family. That's verse 1. So, so Saul comes from a good family. Kish was his dad from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe, and yet it was a, 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 a very influential family. So Kish's son is named Saul, and 9-2 says, and Saul was the most handsome man in Israel. I don't know how you get to be determined that. I don't know if there was a People magazine poll that determined that. I don't know how, you know, that comes to be. But I know this, if God's holy word says you're the most handsome man in Israel, then George Clooney's got nothing on you. You're the most handsome man. And so that's who Saul was. He was, he was a handsome man, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the entire land. So he comes from a good family. He's a, he's a, 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 a good looking guy. He's head and shoulders taller than anyone else. A little bit later in that ninth chapter, God is speaking to Samuel and he tells Samuel this. Now at this time tomorrow, I will send you from the, from the land of Benjamin and anoint him, Saul, to be the leader of the people of Israel. And he will rescue them from the Philistines. For I have looked down on my people in mercy and have heard their cry. So Saul is from a good family. He's a good looking guy. He's got God's blessing upon him. In chapter 10, one more chapter over, you'll see that that the Bible says this about Saul. As Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart. And all of Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day when Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah. They saw a group of prophets coming toward them and then the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Saul and he too began to prophesy. So this is pretty good. He's from a good family. He's a good-looking guy. He's wealthy. He's, he's got God's anointing on him. He goes and has God's spirit so come powerfully upon him that he begins to prophesy. This, this is a great start. Saul, is, he's got it made, right? If your daughter brought home a guy like Saul, good-looking guy, from a good family, wealthy, God's power is upon him so much so that he's prophesying, you'd say, man, this is, this is, I can't get any better than this. Last night, Carl and I were, were out with some friends eating dinner, and, and we were in Grand Blank, and, and some, yesterday was Grand Blank's homecoming, and so there was a big group of, of students that came into the restaurant. And, and there were, at one time, they sat at this one big table, and I counted, there were 11 girls and three boys. And I thought, man, those, those boys know what's going on. They've got it made. <laughs> 
But if you were, uh, if you were a dad and, and your daughter brought home one of these guys, he'd be the, he'd be the homecoming king. He's got it made. Good-looking kid, good family, good, uh, wealthy, God's anointing on him, God's blessing upon him. Great, great, great. What a great start. We would say, because of our word today, potentiality, we'd say, well, Saul's got all the potential in the world. All the potential in the world to do something great for God. And it begins quite well for Saul. He begins to have a few military victories. It takes him a little while. Chapter 13, he has a little problem. He gets ahead of God. He gets a little anxious. But, but that's all right. By the time we get to 14, there's more victories. And in chapter 14, verse 35, we read this. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Now, if you're splitting hairs, you'd say, well, my goodness, we're in first chapter. We're in first Samuel 14. He became king in first Samuel 9. Uh, why is this the very first time that Saul is building altars to God? I know you could make that argument. He's a little slow on the trigger, but, but for whatever reason, now he finally does. And he's building an altar, a Thanksgiving altar to God. And you think, well, why? He's got everything going for him. Saul is, he's, he's from a good family and he's wealthy and he's good looking and, and he's got God's blessing on him and he's building altars. He's going great. But it doesn't end well. And Saul's life begins to spiral out of, out of control, really. And in chapter 14, uh, he, he makes a stupid vow where he almost kills his son. And then and in also in chapter 14, he, he begins to take plunder for himself instead of for, for God's glory. And then it devolves to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, verse 12, remember, 1435, he was building altars to God and in chapter 15, verse 12, the Bible says, Saul went up to Carmel to build a monument to himself. So in less than a chapter, he went from building altars to God to building a monument to himself. And there's a very short dif- distance from thy kingdom come to my kingdom come. And Saul had devolved so much so that God, God's blessing was removed from him. And, God had tur- and, and, and Saul had turned his back on God. God, God gave him strict uh, orders on how to carry out some battles. And, and Saul said, no, I'm going to do it my own way. And so God said, all right, you're on your own. Again, God allows us to make even lousy choices. And, God, and the blessing that was on Saul was removed. That's a very sad, sad picture. In fact, when we get to chapter 16... That's what we're really going to read. The Bible begins this way. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Saul's not dead when that verse is written. Saul's still very much alive. He's going to be alive for, for, for a few more years after this. But Samuel is mourning for Saul, mourning what could have been. Because like a, like a, a marathon, Saul did not finish well. He started well. You know, anybody can start a marathon. We've got some people from our church who are going to be running in the Detroit Marathon in a few weeks. They're running for World Vision. They're raising money to build wells in Africa to people that don't have clean water. So it's a great cause. And and so some of our folks, both our youth pastors, are going to be running in that. That's a great cause. It's a great thing. And they're going to run the, you know, 26.2 miles. You know, and that's wonderful. The the goal is to finish, to run all 20. I could start the marathon. You know, I could do pretty well with that. Carla tells me I don't exercise enough, but I could surely start the marathon. I could probably even run, well, a few hundred feet anyway. 
I could do that. But the goal isn't to start a marathon, right? The goal is to cross the finish line, to come in at the 26.2 mile marker. And Saul had this great start. Good family, wealthy, good looking, God's blessing, prophesying, even a few military victories under his belt. But he finishes so very, very poorly, so much so that that the Lord tells Samuel, Samuel, don't, 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 don't mourn for Saul. How long are you going to mourn for Saul? And you know that circumstance. You have probably people in your life that have made lousy, lousy choices, and you're just heartsick over where their life's direction has taken them. I know a guy, a wonderful person. He's a great guy. He was an All-American basketball player. He, he, he had everything seemingly going for him. He had a wonderful personality, a wonderful wife, all those things. But he was addicted to alcohol. And, and, and his, his addiction to alcohol caused him to lose everything. Job after job after job. Eventually his wife, he landed in jail. It was, it's a mess. And you, and, you, and you mourn for them. He had so much potential. Our word for the day. And yet he tossed it all aside. So Samuel's mourning for Saul and, and God tells him, no longer do you mourn for Saul. And it goes on to say, since I have rejected him over king of Israel... Fill your horn with oil and be on your way, for I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And Samuel says, um, God, we still have a king, and that, that's uh, uh, probably not a good idea to anoint a new king while there's still a king, even though it's Saul, and even though you know Saul and I had a relationship, he's probably not going to be thrilled with me anointing a new king. Verse 2 says, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, ah, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and and I will show you what to do. You will anoint for me the one I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. That's always good. (laughs) You do what the Lord says, you'll be okay. So he goes and in verse two says, in peace, when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. And when they met him and they asked, do you come in peace? And, And Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice. To the Lord, consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, thought, surely, Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, mm, no, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. This is a key part of this verse in this chapter. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. That's a good verse to know. Then Jesse called Abinadab, didn't learn his lesson, had him pass in front of him, and Samuel said, whoa, Lord has chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Shammah pass by, but the Lord said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the boys you got? Is this it? Because, you know, Eliab, no, Shammah, no, Elihu, no. Uh, I'm trying to remember the rest. They're all in there. No, 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 no. (laughs) I knew this day would one day come. (laughs) And it came. It happened once in a funeral. And I started a funeral and I was in the middle of a poem that was written on my iPad. and And my iPad just stopped. 
And so I, this, this, is no, this is exactly what I did. I took the iPad, and you know, you're in the funeral home, there's a couch over there. I took the iPad in the middle of the funeral, and I just tossed it in the couch and said, this is no good. <laughs> and then I, I went on, but I can't do that now. So he saw all these guys, all seven sons. Is this all you got? And Jesse answered, well, they're still the youngest. He's tending sheep. He's just a shepherd. He's the runt of the family. I don't know why you'd want to say, look at Abinadab again. Abinadab, is, he's, he's a good-looking kid. But Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit until he arrives. Hopefully he wasn't too far out. So he sent for him. And he brought him in and he had, was glowing with health. I don't know exactly what that means. I think that means he didn't have high blood pressure. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. For this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, the new king. All right, remember, our key word for the day is potential. Potentiality, if you will. And, and I think Jesse, Jesse didn't see it in David. Probably his brothers didn't see it. No one saw it. He was still out tending sheep when Jesse was going to have this big day of, of, of one of his sons was going to be anointed. And they thought so little of David that they didn't even bring him in. It couldn't be him. It's got to be one of his older brothers. He didn't see the potential in David. But the Bible tells us in that seventh verse, God doesn't, God doesn't handle things the way we handle things so often. So often we do exactly what the cliche says not to do. We do judge a book by its cover. We look at the outward appearance. We, we notice what car they're driving. We notice the clothes they're wearing. We notice all those outward things. But what does God tell us? He looks at the heart. And he looked at the heart of David and saw this potential. David may have been looking in the mirror and seeing a shepherd boy, but God was looking in the mirror and saw a, a giant killer. See, so often we look in the mirror and see all of the problems or see the, the things that we've done in the past or see all the reasons why we can't serve God and God sees the possibilities in our life of what could happen if we truly gave ourselves over to him. So, so David is standing there, newly anointed king. And it's crazy, there's a couple of stories that follow that, that give us some insight into, into what this potentiality is all about and what is entailed. The very next story, this is a crazy tale, really. The very next story, right after David was anointed to be king, right after David was anointed to take Saul's place, Saul is in such a, 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 a state that he is very tormented. You go against God. If you know what God's will is for your life and you choose to do something else, it will, it will lead you to a miserable place. And that's exactly where, where Saul was. Saul, who had God's anointing on him, Saul, who had been prophesying, Saul, who was, had all these blessings upon him, turned his back on God, and now is miserable. And some of the most miserable people I know are people who at one time were vibrant Christians, and for whatever reason, they turned their back on God, and they are in misery. And that's where Saul was. And, you know, this is a thousand years before Jesus, so they don't have Xanax. And so the, Saul's chief of, of staff says, well, I tell you what, um, why don't we bring in a guy and he can play his harp and it'll make you feel better. And so Saul said, that's a great idea. Go get him. 
And who do they bring? None other than, than David. David is the one they bring in there. And notice his potentiality did not, did not uh, his potential to be the king did not overcome him with uh, glory or stars in his eyes or however you want to phrase that. See, it would have been very easy for David at that point to say, hey, this is the way God's working. He, I've been anointed a king, and now I'm in the palace, and the king's over there, and it'd be very easy for me to, you know, get out a, a, a little knife, and bam, 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 goodbye, Saul, and, and I'll be king. But David didn't do any of that. David just do, did what he was asked to do, and that was to play for Saul. David recognized that his potentiality wasn't, wasn't uh, there was some patience that needed to be involved in his potentiality. And that God had, had strategically placed David in the palace to see how the palace is run. How would he know that when he's a shepherd boy before that? How would he know how the, how the palace was run? But, but God had strategically placed him there just for that moment to see the ins and the comings and goings of what it took to be the king. He was in training. He didn't realize it, but he was in training. And God placed him there. Potential doesn't mean we're ready right now. And potential means also that we still need to be faithful. Again, that's where Saul got tripped up, right? He wasn't faithful. God told him to do some things and he refused to do it. He wanted his way instead of God's way. The very next chapter, chapter, chapter 18, is when David, the story that we all know so very, very well, when potential and faithfulness go hand in hand. And that's when David, the shepherd boy, faces Goliath, the giant. And it's a great story, and we all know that story, and we've learned that story from the time we were kids. We all know about David, and we all know how, how David went out there to fight the giant Goliath. And we all know the, 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 how Saul had tried to give him his armor, and he couldn't take his armor. It's interesting, the University of, of Illinois Medical School did a study on Goliath um, several years ago now, I think in 1960. And they determined that, that Goliath very probably had a, a, a tumor, and there's a disease where there's a tumor, and again, I would tell you the disease if I had my iPad. Um, the name of it, it's long and it begins with the letter A, if that helps you. <laughs> but Goliath had that disease, they think, where a tumor grows on the pituitary gland that causes him to grow uh, uh, a lot and to be a, a giant. There is a, a guy by the name of, I think, Robert Wortlaw, who had that disease. He was the tallest person who ever lived. He was born actually 100 years ago in 1918, grew to be 8 feet 11 inches tall, tallest human ever, ever born. They think Andre the Giant, the wrestler, had that same disease. Some think that Abraham Lincoln had that same disease. And they think that, that Goliath may have had that. That's what the University of Illinois, by uh, uh, their guess, in this study, thought that maybe Goliath had that. One of the side effects of that disease is that, is that it affects your vision. And when you're reading the story of Goli- David and Goliath, you were told that, that his armor bearer, Goliath's armor bearer, uh, uh, led him out to the, the battlefield. It very well may be that he had the disease, his eyes were bad, and so someone had to lead him out to the battlefield. He's this giant, but he didn't have very good eyes. There's another clue that maybe that's true when he sees David coming towards him. Remember, David didn't take the armor. All he had was a, was a sack full of stones, his slingshot. Maybe he had a, a shepherd's staff. That would be it. 
But in response to seeing David come towards him, Goliath, who maybe had poor vision, looked out at him and said, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Well, he didn't have sticks. He maybe had one staff, maybe, not plural, one. So it could be that Goliath, this lumbering giant with bad vision, thinks that this kid is coming out with him with sticks, when in fact, David is coming at him with a slingshot. This isn't a children's toy. David was an expert slingshot slinger. He had killed a, a, a bear. He had killed a lion. He knew how to use it. And so he took the stone that he grabbed there in that valley of Elah. Uh, they had particularly hard stones made from a particularly uh, a hard compound, which again, I would have told you that if I had my iPad, but just trust me on that. There's a name for it. And they're in that valley. And David picked one up and put it in a sling and slung it around and, and hit He wasn't going up to fight. It would have been foolish for David to fight hand-to-hand combat with this nearly blind giant. That's how, that's how, how, how he would have lost. But instead, he slung his slingshot, hit Goliath in the most vulnerable place with that, with that very hard rock. The ballistic experts say would have been like a shot fired out of a 45. And David went down. I mean, Goliath went down. David didn't took his own sword, Goliath's sword, and finished the job. Why do I tell you all that? All the other soldiers looked at Goliath and said, man, he's too big to fight. David looked at Goliath and said, he's too big to miss. (laughs) There's one thing that I've learned about potential. People who have never killed giants will tell you it can't be done. People who have never ventured into a a place of trusting in God and trusting in God's possibility and the potential that God places on us will say, say, you've got too many problems, you've got too much trouble, it cannot be done. But they don't understand when God is at work, no giant is competition. But name the giants in your life. Maybe you had a bad past, or maybe your, your marriage is rocky, or maybe, maybe your kids have gone wayward, or maybe your parents were abusive, or maybe, maybe you, your job hasn't worked out, or maybe things haven't always gone according to plan, or maybe you've just really messed things up. And you think, I'm disqualified now because of that. But I contend that God sees each one of us. As long as you're breathing, God sees the potential in you. God sees the possibilities in you. God sees what you can be if you just give yourself over to him. Lord, would you instill in us your vision? Would you give us a God-sized dream that, that we can only achieve if you're in it? Would you use us to, maybe it's to reach one or maybe it's to reach hundreds, but would you use us for your glory? Would you help us to not see ourselves as maybe how others view us or how our past would dictate, but rather help us to see ourselves as you see us, full of potentiality and promises. Help us, Lord, to be your people, wherever you send us, wherever you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.